Chapter 9 of John Dean of Toronto. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. John Dean of Toronto, a comedy of Whitehall by Herbert George Jenkins. Chapter 9 Department Z at Work. Naylor isn't satisfied then, Colonel Walton glanced across at Malcolm Sage, who was gazing appreciatively at his long, slender fingers. He's the shyest bird I've ever come across, said Sage, without looking up. He gave Finley a rare wigging for that call. Now he's having him watched. I expected that, said Colonel Walton, engrossed in cutting the end of a cigar. I think it's jealousy, continued Sage. He's afraid of the special agent getting all the kudos, and the plunder, he added. It was a happy chance of getting that Bergen chap. I'm rather concerned about Finley, said Colonel Walton. Good man, Finley. There was a note of admiration in Sage's voice. He's quite cut adrift from us. He's nothing if not thorough. I can't get in touch with him. Of course he knows. That he's being watched? Yes. Who's looking after him? Hoyle. Sage drew his pipe from his pocket and proceeded to charge it from a chamois leather tobacco pouch. I've had to call Thompson off. I think they linked him up with us. That's a pity, said Colonel Walton, gazing at the end of his cigar. He's a better man than Hoyle. It's that little chap they've got, continued Sage. Lives at Wimbledon. Retired commercial traveler. Clever devil. Malcolm Sage never grudged praise to an opponent. How about John Dean? He's not taking any risks, said Sage, as he applied a match to his pipe. But they'll never let him go north. Then we must prevent him. Perhaps you'd like to take on that little job, Chief. There was a momentary suspicion of a twinkle in Sage's eye before a volume of tobacco smoke blotted it out. I'm afraid it'll force our hand, said Colonel Walton. That burglary business complicated things, said Sage, as he sucked in his lips, with him a sign of annoyance. It was a mistake to keep it dark. That was Sir Lyster. It made Naylor suspicious. Has Finley seen him since? inquired Colonel Walton. Naylor must have given him the secret code. They've met several times, but I believe Naylor is determined to act on his own. He's a weird creature. I wish I could get in touch with Finley, however. Why not try the taxi? I've had Rogers following him around all the time, but Finley hasn't once taken a taxi. I'm afraid he's taking a big risk, began Colonel Walton. That Naylor fellow... He paused. Sage nodded. During the previous ten days, Department Z had learned a great deal about the comings and goings of Sir Montague Naylor of Streatham. It had become manifest to Sage that he had to do with a man who had reduced cunning and caution to a fine art. His every act seemed to have been carefully thought out beforehand, not only in relation to himself, but to what might grow directly out of it. During a walk, he would sometimes turn suddenly and proceed swiftly in the direction from which he had come, as if he had forgotten something, looking keenly at every one he passed. At others, he would step into a shop, where he could be seen keeping a careful watch through the window. 
A favorite trick was to walk briskly around a corner, then stop and look in some shop window with a small mirror held in the palm of his hand. From the first, Malcolm Sage had realized that the conventional methods of shadowing a suspect would be useless for his purpose. Those in whom Department Z were interested would be old hands at the game, and to set a single person to watch them would inevitably result in the discovery of what was afoot. He therefore sent at least three men, or women, to dog the footsteps of the suspect. These would follow each other at intervals of from twenty-five to a hundred yards, according to the district in which they were operating. At a signal that the first in the line was dropping out, the trail would be taken up by number two, who in turn would relinquish the work to number three. Sometimes as many as six were allocated to one shadowing. This method had the additional advantage of enabling the department to assure itself that the watchers were not in turn being watched. It was now uncommon thing for a suspect to arrange to have himself shadowed in order to ascertain whether or no there were anyone on his track. This was a favorite device with Mr. Naylor. For nearly two years, Department Z had been endeavoring to solve the problem of a secret organization with the offshots of which they were constantly coming into contact. The method this organization adopted was one of concentration upon a single object. At one time, it would be at the sailing of vessels from home ports, at another, the munitions output, or again, the anti-aircraft defenses of London. Malcolm Sage was convinced that somewhere there was at work a controlling mind, one that weighed every risk and was prepared for all eventualities. Individuals had been shadowed, some had been arrested, much to Sage's disgust. The efforts of the organization had frequently been countered and its objects defeated, but Department Z had hitherto been unable to penetrate beyond the outer fringe. The most remarkable thing of all was that no document of any description had been discovered, either on the person of those arrested or through the medium of the post. Scotland Yard stoutly denied the existence of the organization. They claimed to have made a clean sweep of all Secret Service agents in their big roundup on the outbreak of war. Whatever remained were a few small fry that had managed to slip through the meshes of their net. Malcolm Sage merely shrugged his shoulders and worked the harder. When it had been discovered that the famous Norvelt aeroplane, which was to give the Allies the supremacy of the air, had been copied by the Germans, the War Cabinet regarded the matter as one of the gravest setbacks the Allied cause had received. Mr. Llewellyn John had openly reproached Colonel Walton with failure. Again, when time after time a certain North Sea convoy was attacked, the authorities knew that it could be only as a result of information having leaked out to the enemy. A raid into the Bight of Heligoland had been met in a way that convinced those who had planned it that the enemy had been warned, although the utmost secrecy had been observed. All these things had tended to cause the War Cabinet uneasiness, and Department Z had been urged to redouble its efforts to find out the means by which information was conveyed to the enemy. We must watch and wait, just hang about on the outer fringe. When we find the thread, it will lead to the center of things. Sage had remarked philosophically. In the meantime, he worked untiringly, keeping always at the back of his mind the problem of this secret organization. Day by day, the record of Mr. Montague Naylor's activities enlarged. With him, caution seemed to have become an obsession. 
As Malcolm Sage went through the daily reports of his agents, he was puzzled to account for many of Mr. Naylor's actions other than by the fact that circumlocution had become with him a habit. Among other things that came to light was Mr. Naylor's fondness for open spaces, and the frequency with which he got into conversation with strangers. He would wander casually into Kew Gardens or Waterloo Park, or in fact anywhere, seat himself somewhere on a bench, and before he had been there ten minutes, someone would inevitably select the same bench on which to rest himself or herself, with the result that they would soon drift into desultory conversation with Mr. Naylor. The same thing would happen at a restaurant at which Mr. Naylor might be lunching, dining, or taking tea. With strangers, his manner seemed irresistible. It would sometimes happen that he would keep one of the telephone appointments, pass through the thoroughfare indicated, and proceed either to a park or a tea shop, where later he would find himself in casual conversation with someone who, curiously enough, had been in that particular thoroughfare when he passed through it. For some time, Malcolm Sage was greatly puzzled by the fact that even when the name of a long thoroughfare were indicated in one of the telephone messages, such as Oxford Street, Marylebone Road, or even the Fulham Road, Mr. Naylor never experienced any difficulty in locating the whereabouts of his subordinate. Sage gave instructions for the exact position of each thoroughfare to be indicated. As a result, he discovered that contact was always established in the neighborhood of the building numbered 10. It's the German mind, remarked Sage one day to Colonel Walton. It leaves nothing to chance or to the intelligence of the other fellow. As each one of Mr. Naylor's associates was located, he or she was continuously shadowed. In consequence, the strain upon the resources of Department Z became increasingly severe. It was like an army advancing into an enemy country, and having to furnish the lines of communication from its striking force. Sometimes Sage himself was engaged in the shadowing, and once or twice even Colonel Walton. By the time we've finished, there won't be even the office cat left. Thompson one day remarked to Gladys Norman, a typist whom Malcolm Sage had picked out of one of the departments through which he had passed during his non-stop career. She had already shown marked ability by her cleverness and resource, to say nothing of her impudence. "'Never mind, Tommy,' she had replied. "'It's all experience. And after the war, when I marry you and we start our private inquiry bureau,' she nodded her head knowingly, why, I've got enough facts from my own department to divorce half the officers on the staff, she added. The work of shadowing Mr. Naylor was not without its humors. Sometimes Department Z was led away on false scents. On one occasion a week was spent in tracking a venerable-looking old gentleman. He turned out to be a quite respectable pensioned civil servant, who, out of the kindness of his own heart, had passed the time of day with Mr. Naylor. The plan decided upon by Colonel Walton and Malcolm Sage was carefully to watch all Mr. Naylor's associates and, at a given time, make a clean sweep of the lot. To achieve this effect, a zero hour was to be established on a certain day. Each was to be arrested as soon after that time as it was possible. This was mainly due to Malcolm Sage's suspicion that some scheme of warning existed between the various members of the combination whereby any danger threatening one was quickly notified to all the others. In all probability, we shall get a few harmless birds into the net, Malcolm Sage had remarked, 
probably the sister of an M.P., or the head of a department in one of the new ministries. But that can't be helped. Still, I should prefer that it didn't happen, Colonel Walton had said dryly. You know the skipper hates questions in the house. By the way, said Malcolm Sage to Colonel Walton one day, Thompson sent in an interesting report this morning. Naylor? queried Colonel Walton. Malcolm Sage nodded. He's having a sort of small greenhouse arrangement fitted in the window of the front room of the basement. It may be for flowers or for salad. Or, interrogated Colonel Walton. Malcolm Sage merely shrugged his shoulders as he proceeded to dig the ashes out of his pipe. The work of Department Z continued quietly and unostentatiously. John Dene was never permitted out of sight, except when in some private place. This meant the constant changing of those responsible for keeping him under observation. The necessity of this was not more evident to Department Z than to John Dene himself. In spite of his scornful manner, he was not lacking in caution, as soon became obvious to Malcolm Sage. At the hotel, he was careful, taking neither food nor drink in his room. He never dined two consecutive nights at the same restaurant, and he consistently refused all overtures from strangers. It soon became evident to Malcolm Sage that John Dean realized how great was the danger by which he was threatened. The ransacking of his room at the Ritzton left John Dean indifferent. The fact that he never locked the small safe he kept at his office at Waterloo Place was not without its significance for Malcolm Sage. In the course of the next few weeks, Malcolm Sage learned a great deal about John Dean of Toronto. Although proof against the wiles of confidence men, always on the lookout for the colonials, he fell an easy victim to the plausible beggar. He never refused a request for assistance, and the record of his unostentatious charities formed a no inconsiderable portion of the rapidly increasing dossier at Department Z. Many were the incidents recorded of John Dean's kindness of heart. A child smiling up into his eyes would cause him to stop, bend down, and ask its name, or where it lived. Whilst the little one was sucking an embarrassed finger, John Dean would be feeling in his pocket for a coin that, a moment later, would cause the youngster to gaze after him in speechless wonder, clutching in his grimy hand a shilling or a half a crown. Once he was observed leading a tearful little girl of about five years old up the haymarket. The child had apparently become lost, and John Dean was seeking a policeman into whose care to consign her. It became obvious to Malcolm Sage that John Dean's weak points were children and lame dogs. Thompson, who first had charge of the guarding of John Dean, reported that one of the most assiduous of those who seemed to interest themselves in the movements of the Canadian was a little man in a grey suit, with a pair of shifty eyes that never remained for more than a second on any one object. "'He's clever, sir,' Thompson had remarked to Sage, "'clever as a van load of monkeys, and he takes cover like an alien,' he added, grinning at his own joke." Has he linked up with Naylor yet? Thompson shook his head. The old bird's too crafty for that, sir, he said. He only comes up against the small fry. This little chap in the grey suit is something bigger. The officials at Department Z soon discovered that the chiefs of the organization against which they were working never came into contact with each other. Communication was established verbally by subordinates 
Another thing that added to the difficulties of Sage's task was that a man who had for some days been particularly active would suddenly drop out, apparently being superseded by someone else with whom he had not previously been in contact. Later, the man who had dropped out would pick up an entirely different thread. This meant innumerable loose ends, all of which had to be followed up and then held until they began to develop along new lines. "'It's a great game played slow, Gladys,' Thompson remarked one day to Gladys Norman as they sat waiting for Malcolm Sage. "'Slow?' cried the girl. "'If this is slow, what's fast?' "'Her initials are G.N.' was the reply. Malcolm Sage entered at the moment when Gladys had succeeded in making her colleague's hair look like that of an Australian aborigine. End of chapter 9 Recording by William Tomko